Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. The signature political achievement of American Jews in the second half of the 20th century was keeping American support for Israel bipartisan. But is that 20th century consensus at risk in the 21st? Two Democratic members of Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, are supporters of the anti-Israel BDS movement, and many partisans on the right are only too eager to use Israel as a wedge issue. Is the Democratic Party still pro-Israel? Will it continue to remain so? Here to help answer these questions is leading public opinion researcher and political strategist, Mark Melman. Mark, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with perhaps the most basic question on this topic. Is the Democratic Party pro-Israel? The overwhelming majority of Democratic elected officials are strongly pro-Israel. The overwhelming majority of Democrats are pro-Israel. So the short answer is yes. (laughs) I'm curious what you found as a political consultant, as a public opinion researcher. You've been doing this work for quite some time. Have you seen in the numbers that you find a noticeable shift in the way that Democrats think about Israel? Well, you know, it's a complicated question. Uh, It's a complicated question at several levels. First of all, as a pollster, one looks at a variety of questions, a variety of indicators. And so, for example, the majority of Democrats uh, still have a favorable impression of Israel. Um, When asked, and the overwhelming majority of Democratic elected officials uh, have very strongly positive views about Israel. Uh, On the other hand, there's a question that the pollsters have sometimes asked about who one has more sympathy for, the uh, Israelis or the Palestinians. and on that indicator, we have seen some diminution of sympathy for Israel relative to the Palestinians. Um, when Pew asked the question, when the Gallup poll asked the same question, they don't find any diminution in support among Democrats. So not clear what's really going on. And even if you take the Pew data at face value, what does that question mean, sympathy? Well, sympathy has a lot of meanings. One meaning is, who do you support? But a frankly, more common meaning is, who do you feel worse for? And if people are being asked who they feel worse for at this point in time, the fact that you say Palestinians and not Israelis doesn't necessarily make you anti-Israel. So it's really pretty complex to understand the, the, the uh, fully understand all the public opinion data. But I think what we can say safely is that the majority of Democrats are pro-Israel. The overwhelming majority of elected Democratic officials very strongly pro-Israel. But there's no question that there have been some building problems in particular constituencies, important constituencies in the Democratic Party. And we need to address those constituencies. We need to explain to those folks what is positive about Israel and why support for Israel reflects progressive values. I think that a lot of people are concerned that once pro-Israel Americans were assured, don't worry, the far left of the Democratic Party, yeah, maybe they have a problem with Israel, but they've got no power. And then now in really rapid succession, several flag bearers of the far left have been elected. Two of them have come out as pro-BDS. And one of them, Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, has been appointed to the powerful House Foreign Affairs Committee. So, you know, what are we to make of those developments? 
Well, look, as I said, the overwhelming majority of Democratic elected officials are strongly pro-Israel, and that's, you know, almost all of the Democrats uh, in the House, almost all the Democrats in the Senate. And so we're talking about a very small number of people that may not fit into that category. Um, is there a problem? Well, yes, there's a problem, and we need to address that problem. And the new organization that I'm leading, Democratic Majority for Israel, is trying to deal with that problem to make sure that we keep the Democratic Party in a strongly pro-Israel position. But I think you have to say now the Democratic Party is strongly pro-Israel, and our goal is to keep it that way. Uh, there are certainly some forces trying to push it in the other direction. Right now, it's a small problem. It can metastasize into a big problem, and we want to prevent that from happening. What's the strategy to do that? You know, I can think of a couple ways of going about this. You know, do you view your organization, Democratic Majority for Israel, as more of a, you know, are you trying to engage the grassroots? Are you trying to educate the electeds who might not be in the place that we would want them to be? How are you going about doing this? Both. We're going from the top <laughs> down and the bottom up. We plan to be actively engaged in educating and advocating and persuading our presidential candidates, our congressional candidates, our members of Congress as to why the progressive value of being pro-Israel remains an important progressive value and why it's politically advantageous to uh, express support for Israel. And we're also going to be working at the grassroots with progressive organizations, progressive individuals to harness their efforts and energy to make that case to our candidates, but also to make sure that they, too, understand the importance of the the U.S.-Israel relationship, understand that it's based on shared interests, but also on shared values. And that's a message that we need to take to important constituencies in the Democratic Party that haven't heard that in a while. Do you think that the Republicans in Congress and Republican leaders around the country, do you think that they understand the importance of bipartisan support for Israel? Or do you think that they would be happy to kind of claim the mantle of pro-Israel for themselves exclusively? Well, I think there's no question that they're trying to uh, manipulate Israel issues for their own political benefit. Uh, it's important, very important for Israel, very important for America, that support for Israel remain bipartisan. Uh, Republicans have repeatedly tried to use this as a wedge issue. I mean, heck, I remember when Joe Lieberman was running for vice president and Republicans said he wasn't pro-Israel enough, <laughs> which is sort of verges on the insane. Um, but in any event, I think they are trying to use it as a political wedge issue. And I think that's not good for Israel. It's not good for America. One number that I cite all the time when I'm speaking to different AJC audiences that actually comes from from your research, from the Melman Group's research, is that I believe it was in this past year in 2018 that you found that 91 percent of American Jewish voters will say that they are pro-Israel. That breaks out into 32 percent who are pro-Israel and supportive of the policies of the current Israeli government, 35 percent who are pro-Israel and critical of some of those policies, and 24 percent who are pro-Israel and critical of many of those policies. But that adds up to 91 percent. And I'm comparing different surveys here, but I think Pew found that 70 percent of American Jews participate in a Passover Seder. I'm not anti-Seder here. I would love to see to see more uh, more Jews doing that as well. But what do you think it says that 91% of American Jews will, when given some breakout options, but asked the basic question, are you pro-Israel or not, 91% say yes, they are? Well, first of all, I, I think it means that, again, the overwhelming majority, almost all American Jews are 
fundamentally supportive of Israel. But one of the things that we have to recognize as a community is you can be critical of Israel, particularly Israeli policies, and still be pro-Israel. I mean, Israelis are critical of Israeli government policies every day, and they're still pro-Israel. We Democrats in America are critical of many, many of President Trump's policies, but we're still very much pro-America. So being critical of particular governments, particular policies, doesn't make you anti-anything. And I think that's what we have to recognize both as a community and as individuals. So even while there might be division in the Jewish community about the uh, particular policies of of an Israeli government, there is a lot of unanimity uh, about basic support for the state of Israel. Well, we here at AJC also share that support for the state of Israel. We share that appreciation of nuanced views, and we share your commitment to ensuring a bipartisan future for American support for Israel. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Before coming to AJC, Holly Huffnagel served as policy advisor to the Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism at the U.S. State Department and as an advanced Holocaust studies researcher at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. She now works as the Assistant Director of International Relations at AJC Los Angeles. Holly joins us now to discuss the importance of the Special Envoy's role in fighting anti-Semitism and to share some thoughts on the just-nominated Special Envoy. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. For two years, towards the end of the Obama administration, you worked with the Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. Can you tell our listeners about the important role of the Special Envoy? Yes, absolutely. So I had the privilege of working with the former Special Envoy, Ira Foreman, from 2015 um, into actually about June of 2017. So six months after Ira Foreman left and six months into the new administration under um, former Secretary Rex Tillerson. I actually, I'll go back a little bit into history and explain why this office was created, because I think it actually helped us understand the importance of it. So uh, in the early 2000s, right around the time, actually, that um, government leaders and Jewish organization leaders and civil society leaders were realizing that there's a different understanding of anti-Semitism. The way we've understood it in the past is no longer um, applicable, especially when it comes to Israel. And we noticed this, HAC noticed this, and this is when we started getting involved in this working definition of anti-Semitism. Well, our congressional leaders in Washington actually picked this up as well. And the Congressman Thomas Lantos, who was actually the only Holocaust survivor ever to serve in the United States Congress, he represented the United States at the UN World Conference Against Racism in Durban in South Africa in 2001. And at this conference, um, and, you know, Lantos had survived the Holocaust with the help of Raoul Wallenberg, you know, being placed in a safe house. So he's got an amazing history. He actually noticed like vehement anti-Semitism that that almost equaled what he saw in Nazi pamphlets coming out of the Arab Lawyers Union and other things that were distributed on the outskirts of this conference. And when he returned to Washington, he partnered with some of his other colleagues um, in Congress. And I want to say here, both Republicans and Democrats. So finding this, you know, this wider hatred was a bipartisan effort um, from the beginning. And in 2004, um, you know, with Tom Lantos's leadership, along with, I think it was Senator George Voinovich and Congressman Chris Smith, uh, they sponsor something called the Global Anti-Semitism Review Act, which, you know, it's available online. I encourage our listeners to read it in detail. Um, it's uh, Senate Bill 2292, which was signed into law by President George Bush, and it required the U.S. State Department to document and combat acts of anti-Semitism globally. And so this was the act within the State Department 
department that created this position of the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. And the position has been a political appointment. Um, and so usually there's a, a new person with each administration. And there's now been four as of a few days ago. Um, the first one was Greg Rickman, who served from 2006. So it took a couple years after the legislation was passed to the new appointee, 2006 to the end of the Bush administration, followed by Hannah Rosenthal, who served in the first Obama term, and then most recently was Ira Foreman, who was there from 2013 to 2017. While you were working with Ira, Ira Foreman, who longtime Passport listeners will remember as a, a guest on AJC Passport, you had the chance to witness and to really be a part of that crucial work. Can you share some of the strategies that the Special Envoy has used to combat anti-Semitism in Europe and around the world? Absolutely. It's a great question. Um, so you know, the the mandate for this Global Anti-Semitism Review Act was to monitor and combat anti-Semitism around the world. So <laughs> very ambitious mandate. <laughs> and so what uh, what each envoy has actually done is, you know, tried to prioritize. You, you have to triage. There's too many things going on, but where can you really make a difference? And I mean, with Greg Rickman, the first envoy, he really focused, for instance, on uh, anti-Semitism coming out of the Middle East, specifically Arab language textbooks and, and press media. Um, Ira Foreman, uh, when I came in, he had decided to really focus on the viability of Jewish communities in Europe, you know, communities that had been around some on the continent for over 2000 years, uh, which we were seeing without if, if, tr if current trends continued, some of these communities might be lost in the next 50. And so that's really where um, he decided to place his efforts. And so we really utilized our uh, embassies that were on the ground. We utilized our European allied governments, our partners, um, also civil society organizations. And AJC was a big part of that effort. So we would rely on AJC offices. This is actually how I was introduced to AJC, was when I was working for the Special Envoy Office on what was happening on the ground. And so we chose a couple of things to really focus on. One of them, um, which our listeners might be familiar with, is the working definition. Uh, I was I started in the Special Envoy's office prior to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance passing this definition in May of 2016. And so for my first year in the office, that was really what we were pushing, was trying to get governments to adopt this definition. The State Department used definitions similar to it. So we'd already had that on our website, and we were explaining how important it was as a useful tool uh, to define what anti-Semitism is and how best to combat it. Another big thing we focused on was the appointment of a special envoys, not, you know, we kind of utilized the United States as an, an example, but we encouraged other governments to appoint people as well. And uh, we were involved in the, a push um, along with AJC to have the European Union appoint someone. And it, it was in the European Commission that they ended up doing it. This Katharina von Schnurbein, she, I think, was also on our podcast recently. Um, she's been fantastic. And we're still encouraging other individual countries to appoint someone. We also, we worked a lot with coalition building, and I, I will say that some of the specific things that we did to combat anti-Semitism um, were done in coalition. The U.S. government never acts alone, and we heavily rely on civil society organizations, and specifically the Special Envoy Office on Anti-Semitism relies heavily on Jewish organizations and Jewish communities in the field who know the issue, who can explain where anti-Semitism is coming from, what they need, and they would either go to us directly or to our embassies um, in Europe, and we really relied on our embassies as, you know, kind of this informational gatekeeper of what's happening and being in contact with them constantly uh, as well. 
Um, you know, I think it's easy to talk in, in broad terms about, you know, uh, coalition building and working definitions and, and, and point people on anti-Semitism. Um, but I, if you don't mind, Steffi, I can give a few examples of specific things that we did while in office to combat anti-Semitism. And we didn't necessarily um, some of this stuff was uh, not, not classified, but was kept under wraps during its happenings. But now several years after the fact, I think it's important to to share some of the things that the special envoys office is capable of doing. Oh, please pull back the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing, you know, the very, our very number one priority really is to protect Jewish communities and, and Jewish lives. And a number of occasions over the couple of two and a half years I was there, we really worked with our embassies to secure Jewish communities in very concrete ways. Um, one of them, you know, is an incredible rescue effort of, of Jews escaping from Yemen. Um, some of them went to Israel, some of them went to the United States and to New York. And that was something that we were a part of. We weren't like the necessarily the only, you know, of course, not the only factor, but it's incredible when you actually see Jewish lives, like you see Jews coming out, you know, out of war-torn Yemen and safely arriving in New York. Like that, that is a win, a complete win for the U.S. government, but also for everyone else that was involved. Um, security in front of, of synagogues and institutions, especially in the wake of the Gaza war protests in the summer of 2014. Sometimes the Jewish communities, whether they be in Brussels or in Paris, or their governments would often work with them, but sometimes they needed extra help and they would either go to our embassies or go to our office. And we would actually help get involved with like getting law enforcement, making sure they were protected, making sure they felt safe. Um, and so we would receive thank you notes like from the community for that help. So that was, uh, that was an incredible. We helped, um, uh, a rabbi get an apartment like in, in Sweden who was felt unsafe uh, as he walked to Shabbat because his apartment was so far away from the synagogue. And, you know, now he was able to to move closer. Um, there was a, a a bishop in 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 Mexico who got on the radio and spoke out against anti-Semitism. And that was something that we had encouraged, like the Catholic Church is involvement in combating anti-Semitism in Latin America, because sometimes that, that's a that's a, a voice that's trusted more than the government. And so, you know, you kind of have to know the, the local context in that fight. And then, of course, there was a, a I think for, for Ira Foreman, this was a, the, a big win, was the prevention of a, um, a statue to an anti-Semite going up in Hungary. Um, his name was Ballant Homan. That was a huge coalition effort. Really, again, members of Congress that wrote letters, AJC wrote letters um, to Victor Orban to not put up the statue. And to my knowledge, it's, <laughs> I know it was built, but I, I, we haven't seen it yet. So um, that's a couple of years ago. So that's a, that was success. And then, of course, the adoption of the um, working definition and the appointment of Katharina von Schnurbein were good wins as, as well. Holly, people may have heard that there hasn't been a special envoy for the first two years of the Trump administration. What has America not been doing in the world as a result of that vacancy? That is an excellent question. And, you know, I want to actually say that there are incredible people at the at the State Department who, fortunately for us, um, I was unfortunately not one of the ones that um, stayed on into the administration. I was I was let go just given where our office was located uh, in the, the bureaucracy of the State Department. But there were several other incredible people who worked on our issues, um, some just, you know, regionally um, in Europe or Latin America who are experts in anti-Semitism. They honestly carried all of this on. On their shoulders. Uh, and they still fought the good fight. The reporting, um, I should have mentioned this earlier, but the mandate for the special envoy is to both combat and that kind of comes in that preventative measures and also reactive measures in combating anti-Semitism. But the second part was monitoring anti-Semitism. And that should be 50% or so of the special envoy's job is monitoring anti-Semitism. That is actually done by um, a couple of, of, of other offices within the State Department. There's the International Religious Freedom Office um, and then also the regional um, bureaus 
uh, help put out human rights reports, and those come out each year, and they we, we work with our embassies to get those out. Anti-Semitism is is monitored and it's mentioned, and I think over seventy, um, or at least maybe Jewish communities and and or anti-Semitism is mentioned in over seventy of the country reports. That monitoring was still happening without the special envoy there. Um, I know that uh, several of my former colleagues were still attending conferences on anti-Semitism, still meeting with um, local communities, Jewish communities, you know, in Europe and in other places around the world. Uh, so it's actually really incredible that they were able to do this work um, without the special envoy. I think what was lacking was the, the kind of the, the figurehead of, of like, you know, American leadership at the front. Um, what's I think really important about this recent appointment of a special envoy and we can, and we can get to discussing him uh, is that the special envoy has access to the secretary of state and the president's ear. And that's tantamount to keeping combating anti-Semitism high on the United States foreign policy agenda, whether it be, you know, for, for funding or, you know, attending conferences, uh, speaking to the highest levels of government leaders. That is something that uh, staff at the State Department that doesn't necessarily have access to. And so I think that was missing, engaging at those highest levels. Um, but the engagement didn't stop. It just now needs to get picked back up. And, and we need to showcase that combating anti-Semitism is a top U.S. foreign policy priority. AJC worked hard recently to help pass a bill through Congress, which elevated the special envoy to the rank of ambassador and required that the role be filled within a short time frame. And as you uh, just alluded, earlier this week, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that Elon Carr had been appointed as the new special envoy. I know Elon a little. I know others at AJC know him well. What will he need to do to be successful in this role? That's a great question. And I am just wanted to start saying I'm really optimistic um, about Elon Carr. Um, I, I feel like we switched places, though, Sefi. You know, I'm, I, I left the special envoy office to come to Los Angeles. He <laughs> left Los Angeles to go to the special envoy office. So uh, I, wish him, I wish him nothing but the best. Um, honestly, to be successful, I think and, and I, I think he's going to be doing this is that there's such first off, his background is very impressive for this, for this um, portfolio. Um, just given his work with, you know, as a, as a lawyer and in the military with the protecting people, other people like safety and security is, is tantamount to him. And he'll be utilizing those skills as he works to preserve um, Jewish communities and, 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 and provide for their, uh, their security. Um, it's definitely a learning curve though. Um, one is just figuring out the bureaucracy of the state department. <laughs> that, I don't even know if I fully knew that after, you know, after the few years I was there, but, um, is, is seeking advice from, from those who have been involved in this fight for a long time. And that includes, of course, you know, AJC, but also the Jewish communities and also our embassies. And so I, he does have the staff support right now at the state department. Um, I know the colleagues who are working with him, who are onboarding him, who are giving him the material that we worked on two years ago. So that's just fantastic to know that that institutional memory, um, is still there and he's not starting from scratch. Um, but is, is, is seeking out like, uh, as he prioritizes the countries that he wants to focus on, um, speaking to experts in those spaces, um, to, to educate him and, and, and hopefully forge a path, a path forward. Um, another piece of advice I would use is just how we, and he will come to this conclusion probably on his own, but how we utilize the term anti-Semitism. You know, we, it, we do feel like it's being used a lot, and and some rightly so. It is it is a term that you know comes with it as, with a stigma. Of course, it's a term that points toward genocide, um, and we don't want to overuse it in the sense that we don't want it to become undervalued or devalued. And so, 
I don't think actually for the few years that we were there, we even ever called someone an anti-Semite. Like, you know, even we might have thought it, huh. but we didn't say it because that shuts down that conversation. So just, you know, it's it's finding that that nuance, finding that that ground to hopefully educate, et cetera, um, and promoting the working definition, because I think that actually does really help uh, understand what anti-Semitism is and where it is coming from. Um, another piece Again, like it is learning the departments of the State Department. Uh, he'll have to work with our, the regional bureaus. There's both regional and functional bureaus in the State Department. Um, he's going to be placed in a functional bureau. Uh, it's he'll, I don't he's there yet, but he'll be in the Department of, of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. It's a functional bureau, but as he works in Europe, as he works in uh, the Middle East, as he works in Latin America, um, there's a regional bureau for each of those um, regions of the world, and there'll be desk officers for the countries that you know he might be traveling in or might, might be interested in learning anti-Semitism. So lots of meetings within the department also will help um, educate him in this space. And I think um, a last thing I'll meet I'll, I'll mention is something that we did, and I hope it continues um, under under Elon Carr, is, is holding a representatives of NGOs slash Jewish quarterly meetings at the State Department where uh, the envoy would invite the representatives from Jewish organizations and human rights organizations to the State Department to have discussions about, you know, what's the most pressing uh, issues with regard to anti-Semitism. AJC was present in all of these meetings in the past, and I know we'd we'd be invited um, again because that kind of helps uh, direct um, some of our decisions and our policy decisions, but it also allows us like allows like the State Department to share with uh, the Jewish uh, with the Jewish leaders what we're what we're doing, um, and so it's important for that you know dialogue and for that for that exchange. Um, but I, I really I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing what um, he'll be doing, what he'll pr- be prioritizing. I know he already hit the ground running. Um, he was in Bratislava a couple of days ago for the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, they're, they're the Slovaks have the chairmanship, and they just did a conference on anti-Semitism, and, and he was there. And uh, he's in Brussels, I think, today for the uh, Romanian so who chair the EU presidency right now. They're having a conference on anti-Semitism, so he is he is off and and running. Um, so I wish him nothing but the best. Indeed. And of course, AJC was present and and is present at both of those conferences as well. Um, I want to close with a question on a slightly different topic. You spent almost five years as a researcher at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and Museum. Just this past week was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 27th, of course, the, um, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz by the Soviet army. There's a lot of back and forth that takes place on Twitter, um, on social media more generally. There's almost a, a game that people play where you find the Holocaust Memorial Day statement by someone whose politics you don't agree with, and then you poke holes and explain all the ways in which it's wrong. A lot of people take issue with the fact that many people, when they're acknowledging International Holocaust Remembrance Day, they try to draw universal lessons from the Holocaust. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, the most egregious version of this, which we've seen happen among you know avatars, political avatars of both the left and the right, is putting out a statement on International Holocaust Remembrance Day and not mentioning Jews or, you know, having Jews kind of in the background and foregrounding a a larger number that includes everyone. Are the lessons that we should be learning from the Holocaust, are those universal lessons about hatred or are they particularist lessons about anti-Semitism? That is a conversation for hours of a (laughs) podcast, Um, but I'll I'll try to be, I'll try to be concise. Um, You know, the, the, the easy answer 
and I can be argued, I can argue against myself is almost both. Um, but I want to be careful. I'll, I'll be careful here. Um, yes. Having worked at the Holocaust museum, um, one of the things that, they, that they, as an institution that they do from their very beginning was to, sh- to share the story of the Holocaust and what happened, the genocide of the Jews. And they do separate that. And I, I want to be clear that the Holocaust um, really does refer to the systematic persecution and annihilation of the Jewish people. And there were other victims of Nazism, you know, including, you know, the Poles and homosexuals and Roma and and. That needs to be remembered, of course, as well, but that might be considered separate from the Holocaust. Um, But what they do, and they do this well, is telling the story and explaining what happened and why it's not important, but what are the lessons? And there's these signs when you enter the Holocaust Museum that says, like, if you see something, say something, you know, like, how do we rid our society of hate? How do we know the other and understand the other? So there's room for difference, right? I think Rabbi Sachs was, he talked about the dignity of difference. And I think that's something that the Holocaust Museum showcases. It, It starts with the particular and and it goes to the universal to make it applicable for for young people, for students, for families that are coming in. And I will say this: that there's millions of visitors to the Holocaust Museum each year, but I think 80, 75, 80 percent aren't Jewish. So right, it's taking that Jewish story and making it more applicable to their lives to help them understand who Jews are and what happened, but just trying to teach those more universal lessons. Yet I will argue when it comes to the Holocaust. Um, and being used, you know, the Holocaust isn't a political tool and it shouldn't be used by, again, like you said, people on the left or the, or the right as this way to make other people understand another one of their political agendas, like if you will. And and we see this happening and it's it's very unfortunate. And I, at the UN, I was at the, I had the fortunate privilege of, of actually joining AJC at the United Nations um, for the International Holocaust um, Remembrance Day event where Sarah Bloomfield, who is the, the director of the museum, the Holocaust Museum in DC, uh, gave the keynote. And she spent ample time in her speech saying that, you know, the um, as the especially as the memories of the um, what happened, like the the survivors are dying away and their memories are dying with them, although we've tried really hard to preserve the the stories. um, There is a fear that what happened in the Holocaust will also be forgotten, but it can't be used as a political tool um, by politicians in this fight. So that's where I, I would have issue with it. We had a big issue with the State Department a couple of years ago, actually, when I think it was President Trump, his first um, Holocaust Remembrance Day statement, he'd been in office for, I guess, a week and a half, um, didn't mention Jews. And so that was a huge thing. Like, how do we explain, you know, that this is a particular story? So, and, it, and Jews need to be mentioned in it. So I think it's an ongoing challenge. Um, and, you know, if you read the recent reports, like from the CNN survey, where, you know, you've got one in 20 Europeans, according to the survey, that um, don't know much or if, if anything at all about the Holocaust. Uh, and they only know maybe what's being tweeted out for, as a political tool. That's dangerous. And that's something that we need to work on changing. Well, there's much work yet to be done for AJC and and for our our friend, the Special Envoy. Holly, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for inviting me, Steffi. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The Shalva Band. Good for the Jews? Both lead singers, one an immigrant to Israel from India, the other from France, are blind. Two band members have Down syndrome. Another has Williams syndrome. Another is a disabled veteran of the Israel Defense Forces. And on and on. Together, they make up the Shalva Band. 
lately one of the most popular musical acts in Israel, and they had seemed to be an unstoppable juggernaut on Kochav Haba, or The Next Star, an American Idol-type competition in Israel. And waiting for them at the end of that competition was a chance to represent Israel on the world stage in the international extravaganza called Eurovision, which will be held in Tel Aviv this year as a result of Netta Barzilai's song Toy winning the 2018 competition. But now they've taken themselves out of the running. Many members of the band are religiously observant Jews, and Eurovision has a mandatory dress rehearsal on the Friday night before their competition, which would have required the band members to violate Shabbat. Eurovision refused to be flexible, and so, choosing Shabbat over fame, the Shalva Band withdrew from Kochav Haba. Thank you, Shalva Band, for teaching us an incredible lesson about inclusion and about faith. You are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.